friends, I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear. Today we are joined by Curtis Chang, and we are talking about anxiety. We're talking about anxiety as an opportunity for spiritual growth. Curtis is a theologian and a consulting faculty member of the Duke Divinity School. He's a senior fellow at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's the host of the Good Faith Podcast, which I personally appreciate and listen to regularly. And he is the author of The Anxiety Opportunity, and that's what we get to talk about today. I did want to note as we go into this interview that we recorded it a few months ago. So you may notice that I make reference to my own anxiety about our family's upcoming move. And if you've been following along on Instagram or Facebook or some of those other uh, places, you'll know that we've made it to the other side of that move and therefore the other side of that anxiety, at least for now. But I am certain that other opportunities await. So for me and for those of you who know that you do wrestle with anxiety, even for those of you who think you don't, this episode is really great at uncovering what anxiety is all about and at offering practical ways we can face anxiety and grow in the midst of it. Well, I'm sitting here today with Curtis Chang. And Curtis, I wanted to start just by saying welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, we're here to talk about your book, but I feel like I should mention, first of all, that I am a little bit of a fangirl of yours because <laughs> I am a very regular listener to your podcast. And I want to just start because presumably we have a lot of podcast listeners here at this moment. And so if any of you do not know the Good Faith podcast, that is now Curtis's podcast. It used to be Curtis and David French together. Now Curtis is at the helm, although David French still comes back and talks. And uh, for anyone who's interested in the intersection of faith and culture and politics and just really thoughtful conversations, I do want to just put a little plug in for oh, your podcast. Thank you. So thank you for that. <laughs> I'm really thrilled to be able to be on um, the conversational end of things with you and not just the listening end. But we're oh. here to talk about your new book. And yeah. uh, so Curtis's book is called The Anxiety Opportunity. And I thought... Maybe the title itself could be a launching point for the book because you have a pretty distinctive way, I think, of um, talking about what anxiety is. So maybe you could explain that. But also, I'd love to hear in what way you see anxiety as an opportunity. Yeah. Well, this book comes from a lot of personal experience with anxiety. And uh, growing up, I was an anxious child. And although I didn't know it and didn't have words for naming it. Yeah. And part of it, I think, is because of the way in which anxiety has been typically uh, framed, uh, in the, especially in the Christian church, that it's been really framed as a problem, mm-hmm. a problem that we have to make go away. And typically, we have one of two ways we make it go away. One is spiritually, we make it go away. And you might call this the prey anxiety away model, Mm -hmm. which anxiety is viewed as a character flaw or a lack of faith, or even in some circles as an actual sin. So that we have to make go away or in some churches that, you know, have come to the place of not wanting to stigmatize mental health. They may say, okay, anxiety is not a sin, but it's a mental health problem. And Mm. so we outsource it to secular mental health. And this, you might call it, do we prescribe it away? Prescribe it with either medication or therapy. And again, let me be clear, both prayer and medication and therapy are good things. I've done all three of those things uh, myself in response to my anxiety. But the, the issue is that in both the pray it away or the prescribe it away, we are still constructing anxiety 
solely as a problem to make mm -hmm. go away. And uh, I believe both from my own experience and, and from scripture and from theology that anxiety is not primarily and certainly not only a problem to make go away, that it is also an opportunity, perhaps the most powerful opportunity we will have regularly in our lives for spiritual growth. And it's, it's a doorway to go into, not to vo avoid and uh, make go away in some way. So that's why I wrote the book, both out of my own personal experience as somebody who suffered, um, and I can say more other examples of ways that I've suffered from early on to, to my adult life, having experienced some very devastating experiences with anxiety. I don't mean to minimize it or to say it isn't suffering or isn't a problem. I've suffered deeply from it myself, mm -hmm. but the good news is that it isn't just a problem. It really is an opportunity. Well, yeah, maybe you could just give us one example. You've given a lot in the book from your own life in terms of some of the more almost comical or minimal, you know, the the little anxieties that we experience on a regular basis, which are just as real and, again, opportunities as the deep, you know, as you said, devastating anxiety. And you can choose what, what you want to share. But would you um, just pick a story and share that in terms of um, – both what happened and how you began to see that as an opportunity for spiritual growth. Sure. Well, I'll tell the devastating example because that's always the more <laughs> dramatic <laughs> one to tell. Um, when you, uh, one of the things that's in my bio uh, when describing who I am is you can say a mm -hmm. podcast sponsor or I'm a faculty at Duke Divinity School and so forth, um, is that I'm a former pastor of an evangelical covenant church. And the former in that title is due to anxiety. So I was taking over as the lead pastor of a very growing large uh, church that this is back in the early 2000s and what you might call one of the early emergent or seeker sensitive churches that was really growing. We got up to about 3000 people every Sunday, which for the Bay mm. Area is a very large church. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then the former the founding pastor left. Uh, he got burned out. Um, and mm. also because our church was going through this um, process of really discovering the call to justice in the gospel. Uh, and we had begun as a church that was founded in the suburbs of Sunnyvale, uh, really very much within that seeker emergent church with a kind of an individualistic, you know, me and God, finding God, finding meaning. And because of an influx of a lot of folks like me from InterVarsity, we were bringing in sort of this appreciation uh, for the, what you might call the horizontal uh, aspects of the gospel, mm -hmm. the, the ways in which it calls us to justice and mercy and um, peace. And, and uh, this was, you know, very challenging for our founding pastor, but he, he really took it on. And we began to make changes in the church, including relocating the church from the suburbs of Sunnyvale to downtown San Jose to bring our people sure. into greater contact with economic and racial diversity. And that turned out to be, we were sort of naive in thinking we could just pull that off. So that began to trigger uh, already an exodus of people who were like, I didn't sign up for this. Um, and that was really discouraging to the founding pastor who thought, you know, of course people will follow me. So he left. Yeah. So I inherited a church that was already in crisis uh, already. And then you know, quickly discovered that it, as what all the church growth people will tell you is that when a founding pastor leaves, that's another uh, marking point for oftentimes people leaving the church. Sure. And then the dot-com bust hit 
This is uh, in the 2000, uh, in the 2000 or mid 2000s. And that created another whole exodus of people just leaving the area uh, as well as giving, going down, sure. people losing their yeah. jobs. So I'm inheriting all of this in my first year as my wow. first role as senior pastor. And I was just in over my head, mm. but I didn't have a way to make sense of it because really what was, I was feeling was anxiety. Mm. Um, I was fear. I was, and what anxiety is, it is the fear of loss. It is the fear of some future loss. And I'm fearing that I'm going to lose the church or lose a, a successful church. I'll lose my self image as a successful pastor. I'm going to lose mm. the respect of, you know, my peers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. All these losses mounted. And that's what anxiety is. I didn't have language to really recognize that. And so I just thought, well, I'm, I'm under workload. I'm under a heavy workload. I'm under stress, but it's not anxiety because again, in I'm laboring under the narrative of anxiety is a spiritual problem that we're supposed to, mm. you know, pray away. And so as taking over as the founding pastor, I couldn't exactly, I felt like I couldn't exactly get up there and tell everybody, yeah, I'm, you know, suffering from the lack of faith right now. Um, and so uh, I just kept pushing it away. And and uh, eventually uh, I hit this period. Well, one, you know, uh, as I can't remember the name of the, the book, but there's, there's a book out there that's called Your Body Keeps Keeps Score. Uh, oh, the body keeps the score. The, yeah. the body keeps the score, right? Well, so anxiety, yep. the body keeps the score of anxiety. And so where that was showing up for me was I was starting to have trouble sleeping. Uh, and yeah. so seven hours, then six, and then five, and then four hours. And then I finally, in June of 2005, hit a two-week period where I did not fall asleep consciously at all for mm. two weeks straight. And uh, around day 10, I remember I was alone in the house. I remember screaming out mm. loud, like, God, just make this stop. Just make this stop. I will say anything. I will do anything. I will believe yeah. anything if you just make this stop. And that's because, mm. you know, insomnia, especially any kind of insomnia, but that driven by anxiety, uh, it's not just you're tired. It, it, you feel like your mind is fracturing in a million yeah. pieces. And it's funny because the next time, the next moment after I cried out, like, ah, just make this stop. I had this moment of realization. I was like, oh, so that's how Guantanamo Bay works. Like, you I was know, about to say, yeah. I mean, torture <laughs> is actually what you're describing. Just the, um, what's uh, fascinating, it's kind of the wrong word because it sounds positive, but is that your um, brain was able to, keep you awake so much, right? That it didn't yeah, have it was to a self-inflicted torture. Right. right. Self-inflicted <laughs> torture. I mean, yeah. but but I guess maybe that's a, maybe that is another way to describe the anxiety that is w the one that we deny and that we refuse to actually name and yeah. um and address. Yeah. So um I that led to a breakdown. I mean I I slid into a deep depression, which can happen with chronic unaddressed anxiety. Uh, and um, into a further dark night of the soul. And that ended mm. my pastoral career. So that's why I'm a former wow. pastor. So yeah. I say, I share all that to say, I know anxiety. I know it from the right. inside and I know it's a problem. I'm not saying this is not a painful thing that, that's true in our lives. But from that, I can also say with absolute confidence that, anxiety is also an opportunity for growth that where I am today is precisely because of having gone through that experience. Now I could have gone through that experience 
with much less painful um, in a much less painful way if I'd actually yeah. been willing rather than to push it away and avoid it, been able to actually lean into that anxiety, enter into that experience. And that's really why I wrote the book is don't want people to make the same mistake I made uh, that, that of, of actually avoid when we avoid anxiety, when we treat it as something that is a problem to make go away, we actually make we are actually at risk of increasing the levels of anxiety in our lives. Yeah, it is an irony. I wrote a book about healing um, that came out a year ago. And in it, I have a chapter on anxiety uh, as a barrier to healing, I think for very similar reasons, um, obviously not with the type of depth that you are able to give in your book, but that sense that when we deny, ignore, avoid, then the anxiety just becomes this barrier to the healing that God wants to do in our lives. And I don't, I didn't use the word opportunity, but I do think that is um, a really good way to name what is also possible is that, you know, God is not afraid of our anxiety, but at the same time, it can get in the way of what God wants to do in our lives if we are afraid of it and if we can't actually acknowledge that that's what's going on. And I wanted to ask, you've mentioned in your own life, for example, the not sleeping was a signal that you were uh, in a place of anxiety and needed help. It's And you mentioned the body keeps the score. Like, could you just give some, talk a little bit about the ways that our bodies can signal that we, or maybe our minds also, that we're experiencing no. anxiety, especially for those of us who have been conditioned <clears throat> to pretend, whether it's because of like, I don't know, stoic American individualism yeah. or because of Christian culture and um, in your book, I think you have a great section on clobber verses that tell mm-hmm. us not to ever admit that we are anxious because it would yeah. be bad, you know? Yeah. Um, so what are some of the clues if we're unwilling to admit anxiety <laughs> that might actually yeah. signal to us, ah, this is your, what's going on here? Yeah, I think uh, you could maybe categorize these as bodily clues, bodily signs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mental signs, and like relational signs. So in terms of bodily signs, there is insomnia for some people. Others experience this and get in stomach distress. The anxiety resides in their stomach and they you know, have a variety of GI uh, distresses or just the tightness of chest that people will yep. feel. Um, so people locate uh, their anxiety in different parts of their body. Muscle tension yeah. uh, is often another sign of anxiety. So yeah, there are various w- classic bodily signs, which all stem from the fact that what is happening is anxiety is hijacking our fight or flight symptoms mm-hmm. um, and that are designed by God to respond to an immediate present real threat. It's actually hijacking that system to make it think uh, that this threat is happening because it's actually hijacking us to the future, some imaginary situation. So that we're imagining a threat, but then because it feels real, our, it's rec- it recruits our fight or flight system to respond to actually an imaginary future threat when that system really was designed just to meet an immediate uh, threat before us. And then because we're being hijacked in the future, we can't ever shut it off, right? Because the future ever looms before us. So mm-hmm. yes, if I'm facing a snarling wolf, I, my stomach should shut down because I want my blood flowing to my muscles, not to my stomach digestive processes to actually flee or fight that you know wolf. But if it's an imaginary wolf, like the, lo- the, the metaphoric wolf of like yeah. loss of status or loss of relationship with my kids or something like that, then that wolf is ever, ever present in the future 
right? It's ever and it, because it's it's not real. It's so it's ever conjured up in our mm-hmm. minds, um, and so our, that's why those reactions stay locked in. So our, our that's why you know I couldn't fall asleep because it was like I was facing an, a, a threat <laughs> before me all the time, or my yeah. stomach is shutting down all the time, or my muscles are tensed all the time. So those are some common bodily signs. But my book also describes ways in which our mental patterns reveal. Ways in which are we are engaged in this uh, hijack, being hijacked by anxiety, and then what's really interesting for me is in ways in which anxiety shows up in our relationships, mm. uh, and especially because they can often be hidden. Like I write about this in my in my book a lot about uh, a big breakthrough, in in my uh, marriage was realizing patterns in which both of us were actually feeling anxious about something, but we couldn't name it. And we were trying to avoid that anxiety in very different ways. Mm. Uh, so, for example, I um, try to deal with anxiety through the fight mechanism. Like I will head towards that threat, but then try to like wrestle with it in a way to make it go away. So this is where my rumination comes in. I'm, my, I'm mentally rehearsing and wrestling and turning an idea, try, try to make that feared loss go away. She's a flea person. She's an away person. So okay. she tends to like want to avoid it, go away from it, from a like, I don't want to talk about it or let's not, you know, deal with that. And we were having all sorts of like relational conflict because it was basically our different avoidance measures coming into conflict. So, you know, I was judging her for being in denial and, you know, you know not confronting reality. She's judging me for being obsessive and being overly uh, worrying. And, and then finally, we just started realizing, wait, we're just both anxious <laughs> right now. We're just <laughs> responding in a different ways. And that was super helpful. But so those are some ways in which I think people can hopefully start recognizing uh, the yeah. anxiety in their lives. Yeah, I can relate personally with so many of these things. And I want to not make this into a you know therapy session for me. But, um, but I will. Where, where, where you just have a bunch of people listening in on our therapy session. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I will mention um, a couple of things that were just prompted from my own life and what you just said. Um, one is that bodily response. And again, some listeners will know this from having read my book, but I had a, um, a paralyzed stomach when I was in high school. Mm, wow. And again, I would have told you that I was not an anxious person um, for a variety of reasons. But I do the way you even described the like wolf in the future and yeah. the blood leaving your stomach. I mean, that was literally what a gastroenterologist said about my stomach in looking at pictures of it. They were like, it's gray. There's no wow. blood. Like it, it, so I do think there was some measure of like, I am on heightened alert all the time for the danger in the future, um, in such a way that it even like shut down my organs, which is obviously quite severe. Um, but even more recently, I'm a healthier person now and I do really want, I've been learning how to pay attention to some of those bodily signals, whether it's the kind of small thing of like my eye twitching, but I really Mm. do find that when I am getting a little bit um, more stressed out and not necessarily knowing what to do about it, my my eye starts to twitch. Um, and last night I had, we're, we're preparing for a move. And so that's, I know that, and this is what I, I want to ask you yeah. about, because I know consciously yeah. that it is a stressful thing to move and that that is coming in the next couple of weeks. Like, and so, you know, I am feeling that as, um, 
I'm feeling that in my body. And last night I had all of what I would call anxiety dreams, where mm. which I don't actually thankfully have very often. But last night it's like I'm looking at a city that has flooded and I'm wandering around in an amusement park barefoot needing to go to the bathroom and thinking, but I can't go into the bathroom with bare feet. Like, you know, so yeah. all of these kind of out of my control anxious dreams. Yeah. So I guess my question is when you are paying attention enough to be able to say like, clearly my subconscious is signaling anxiety, right? And yet on my conscious mind, I think, well, I know that it's stressful to move. I have a plan. We know what's like, I don't, I, how do you actually address that anxiety when you are become aware through bodily or relational or whatever measures that it's actually present? Yeah. It's a great question. I think there's, I will say there's one thing that we all can do to help lower the anxiety when we feel, and then there's something Mm -hmm. we can do to go deeper into it. So these are sort of, I think actually um, parallel harmonious moves, but but I think people sometimes most immediately want, well, how do I lower our anxiety levels, which is a fear, desire. Um, I would say that one thing that we all can do is to read our anxiety as a sign, as a signal that we are living in the future in some way, that mm-hmm. we're that, and, and it's really some future loss that we're rehearsing in our mind over and over again, or subconsciously perhaps. And so, one way we can lower anxiety is to simply try to get more in the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something going on in which we are rehearsing, and I don't know what it is for you, whether it's you know thinking about what if we forget something or what will our my family right. adjust to this and will we lose yep. something in there who knows right I, I really really should not turn this into a therapy session <laughs> for you <laughs> but um but 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 to pay attention like okay I'm I'm living in the present how do I get more back into the I'm living in the future how do I get back into the present in mm-hmm. some ways and this may be an, an opportunity for us to actually adopt some ways that are time tested that are actually found in scripture that which secular mental health also has adopted of ways of getting present. And they, mm-hmm. this comes by you know, labels like mindfulness or, you know, <clears throat> uh, getting into our body, uh, breathing, getting into creation and nature. These are all ways in which actually are found in scripture that Jesus himself often talks about or embodies himself and enacts himself of calling people to look, be present with the current reality rather than living in kind of future scenario land. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know what that means for you, but maybe it means actually getting present and enjoying these last few days in this house with your right. kid, you know, um, in, in the current reality that you have now. I don't know. But but one thing is that anxiety, when we, when we are able to name it, is an invitation to get present, to get to the now. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, when he says, hey, don't be anxious. And he's not saying don't be anxious because of the sin. He's saying, saying, look, don't be anxious because you're living in tomorrow and tomorrow has enough to worry about for itself. And then he invites his listeners in the Sermon on the Mount to get present to creation, especially mm-hmm. to the to the, to the the lilies, to the birds, mm-hmm. and to experience God by getting present. Because that's that's a, how we actually can only relate to God is by actually we, we build a relationship with God, just like we build a relationship with anyone in the present, in the here and now, not in an imaginary future, right? So, so that's one thing. But then I think the really interesting thing is then think, reading anxiety then, hopefully once you've sort of been able to bring it to some, some manageable levels, then reading anxiety as a sign of loss, like trying to mm-hmm. help understand what is the loss 
that is yeah. going on. Because again, anxiety equals loss. It's some fear loss. So, you know, in your case, you might be using this as an opportunity like, well, what is the loss here? There's some right. loss of leaning this over. Is it the memories? Is it is it that, you know, the experience that you've had in this house that you wonder, will you be able to replicate in the future? I, I Is it the financial stress? of Who knows? Right. I don't know what that right. is. But there's some loss, that's a, and I, I think that's, the 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 ways in which anxiety is an opportunity is it helps us, us investigate the nature of the loss that we fear. And oftentimes it's not what we think is on the surface. There's some deeper loss that we may be sort of, you know, wrestling with, rest, uh, trying to trying to avoid in some way that we may need to actually uh, be invited to come into contact with. And some of that involves grief, actually, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so that, that actually... One of the ways in which Jesus responds to his anxiety that he experienced in Gethsemane, um, which I write about it, is when Jesus himself experiences the anxiety of a future, his future loss, is he grieves. And, yeah. and grieving is this way in which we, rather than avoiding loss, we actually hold loss. And we actually just experience it. We just suffer it rather than trying to, in our minds or other behaviors or our relationships, make it go away to avoid it. And holding loss is then just simply saying, okay, I'm going to hold it in the present versus try to avoid more of it in the future. And that enable it actually, it teaches us to actually that loss is holdable. And that that's actually a profound spiritual growth when we can actually relate to loss as something that is scary, that makes us, that we have to make go away, but rather something that is still scary and is still painful, but something that we can actually tolerate, something that we can mm -hmm. actually hold. I really appreciate that um, idea of, that does, as you said, come up in the book about grief and other holding habits um, that we can cultivate. And I want to come back to that, but before we do, I have two things to say. The first is um, when you were talking, I did remember when our daughter Penny was first born and we found out that she had Down syndrome, whenever she was out of the room, when we were in the hospital, um, it was, I mean, unbearably frightening mm. um, and just filled. I wouldn't have even used the word anxiety because it was beyond that for me. Mm. Mm -hmm. When she was present in the room, it, that was gone. I mean, there was, it was just like, wait, what was that? And then it would happen again. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it was just such this kind of tangible example because when she was in the room, she was a concrete, <laughs> human, right. beautiful. And in, in her case, like she was a healthy baby who was also diagnosed with Down syndrome. But Down syndrome was this like abstract fear in the future at that point. Mm. Like they're really, we were not in a position of having a child who needed surgery mm. tomorrow or something like yeah. that. Um, and so that to me was kind of the embodiment of what you were saying about being yeah. here now. Um, and I think you write about this as well, but over and over in scripture, there's such this promise that God will be with us now. My yeah. question for you though, is cause you write a lot in the book about eternity. Yeah. So what's the difference between like living in the future and living in and with a sense of eternity because yeah. they're somewhat, I think they feel related. Yeah. And yet I think you're also trying to argue that they're very different in terms of what they're going to do with our anxiety. So could you yeah. talk about that a little bit? One way to think about this is, 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 is a sequence of spiritual growth that in the in anxiety for it to be an opportunity of spiritual growth for most of us involves first learning to get present, like to not live in the future. Because mm -hmm. if we try to like fight anxiety 
future on future and say, I'm going to, you know, what we're most likely going to do is, is grab for and try to construct our own future scenario that avoids loss. Cause that's mm-hmm. our temptation. It's like, okay, so I'm going to think, think, think and turn things over in my head enough so I can think my way to some situation where that feared loss I have won't happen. Right. So, and then, or we'll, we'll going to demand that from God. We're like, God, you know, you give me this future that I will not experience loss. And we come to even demand or expect God was always going to deliver that. So mm-hmm. one of the reasons why spiritual growth through anxiety starts by getting present is it's a way to stop that, that temptation, our addiction to creating or getting God or creating God in our image of, you know, God as the and Christianity as the cosmic loss avoidance scheme, right? That just somehow, you know, if we're Christians, we won't experience loss, which as you've experienced, as I've experienced, is just just not true. We got to disabuse ourselves of that that addiction to that that, uh, falsehood. So getting present certainly helps, but you're absolutely right. We're still left with the problem of loss. We're still left with the problem of the future, right? And this is where... uh, I think anxiety then becomes an opportunity for us to reformulate our understanding of the future, especially the future that is promised to us in Jesus. And this is where the promise of the resurrection is so critical to anxiety, to a Christian um, experience of anxiety. Because again, if we think anxiety equals loss, if we treat anxiety then as a problem to make go away, this means we're saying loss has to go away, right? Mm. And this is, and so this is why anxiety cannot be a, just a problem because then if we think it's a problem to eliminate, we're saying loss is something that we must eliminate in our lives. But mm. that's not the Christian promise is that a loss will be eliminated. Rather, the promise is death, resurrection, right? That's actually the, that's, that's the pathway that Jesus took through his own anxiety. He Mm. went through loss. He did not actually end up avoiding it, but he went through loss. And then Mm -hmm. he got resurrection, which is the restoration of loss. But restoration of loss, which is resurrection, is a completely different thing than avoidance of loss. Those are two different things. Resurrection is going through loss, experiencing Mm -hmm. it, holding it in the promise that even as we go through the loss, we are being held by the presence of God, just like mm. Jesus was held by the presence of his father. And then on the other side of it, in the future, in the final end, when Jesus returns to restore all things in the final resurrection, all of our losses will be restored. So that's the future, but that's a future that goes through loss. It goes through death. It doesn't avoid it, right? And so um, so we do ultimately need to have a future lens on anxiety, but it needs to be anchored in the truth of, of the gospel and the prom, the true promise of Jesus, which is not loss avoidance, but right. actually loss restoration. That's really helpful. And I'm um, thinking in the book about some of the just very practical ways you say we can um, notice when we are trying to avoid that loss. Um, I'm, and I'm curious if you could just maybe name those a little bit, like, again, as the, what are some of those clues? Because I think that can happen, especially depending on your personality. You and I, I think, have similar ways where yeah. 
it does become fairly clear whether that's through my body or through my ruminations where I just am mm-hmm. like circling a problem in the night, you know, yeah. <laughs> as yeah. if going around the bend one more time, I'm going to come up with a new solution or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I am pretty aware of what it is that is bothering me in those cases. And I think there are other times where we really don't know. Um, yeah. And it's like, we have to spot the avoidance, not the that's right. um, problem almost in order to yeah. get there. And I'm, um, can you like give us just again, some insight into how to know? Yeah, I think so I can give some examples, but I think you're right. These are ultimately very personal realities that need to be mm. investigated. Yeah. Um, and, but, but yeah, so I think generally speaking, you can categorize avoidance habits as a way or around that re- correlate to our fight or flight tendencies, yep. right? So fight would be more what the around move and the away is more of the, the flee move. Um, and so, uh, you know, so typical away moves are denial. Um, addictions uh, are very mm-hmm. common as an away move because we're numbing, trying to numb ourselves. Yeah. We don't want to feel that thing. So it could be something a, a relatively benign addiction to, I just, I've got to watch, you're watching a lot of TV yeah. Uh, shopping is a very common away move yeah. that people are dealing with their anxieties uh, to get some to numb yeah. it by getting away from something that they feel that makes them feel lost. That they're getting getting a immediate sensation of gain uh, by purchasing something. Um, phobias are another classic away uh, sort of pattern that's set in is because we just can't come anywhere close to that thing that we fear losing. Um, uh, so those are some common away ones, around ones, I think rumination, like I said, um, relationally, uh, when we find ourselves like we're, we're always like badgering people for something or we're that very hyper insistent personality um, that can't mm-hmm. let go of things. That's a, a classic around move that you're mm. uh, uh, you're heading, you're fighting something, you're fighting the loss. Um, but ultimately, these are some sort of great categories that people can use. I do think that our hearts and our minds and our bodies can be so subtle. I think especially if they're not like at very ratcheted up to very high levels that it takes investigation. And this is where I actually think and it's another op- spiritual opportunity because it's an opportunity to invite the spirit of God in that investigation. You know, Psalm 139 says, is a prayer of an anxious person where he prays, oh God, investigate my anxious thoughts. See mm. if there's any offensive way in me. And what that suggests is that the psalmist recognizes the sin is not in the anxious thoughts. That's that's just reality. But it's an opportunity for investigation. And God needs to enter in that process for investigation yeah. because there may be something wrong about the way I'm thinking, feeling about it. I, I may be engaging in this false belief that God promises the avoidance of all loss, that Christianity is a cosmic loss avoidance scheme. That needs to get investigated. And and the the great invitation of the Christian life is we don't have to do that alone. This is not just a self-introspection that we're called to. It's a examination of which we are invited to participate in by the Spirit of God, this Holy Spirit. I mean, Paul talks about, Paul gives a nickname to the Holy Spirit, calls, he calls it the searcher of hearts. Hmm. Uh, that's the Romans formulation in the book of Romans. And the, the search of the hearts, the hearts for the Hebrews was the origins of one's thoughts. They didn't have a conception of the brain as a conception yeah. of the thoughts. So they located thinking in the organ of the heart. So when Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is the searcher of the heart who comes alongside us in our weakness, mm. what Paul is describing is we're kind of weak by ourselves to know truly what is going on in our own thoughts. 
we need to be able to believe that God is interested. God is curious. God wants to investigate, hey, what's going on in there? And we can invite the spirit into that process. One of the um, aspects of the spirit's work that you wrote about that I really appreciated was saying that it, um, that we will often hear from the spirit in the form of a question. Mm-hmm. Just that sense of both gentleness and also of really invitation to dialogue, to relationship, to an ongoing pursuit. And I, you know, find myself certainly often wanting um, or thinking at least that I want the spirit to simply be directive. <laughs> but right. yeah. I found Give that me the answer. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's right. I mean, if you think about the spirit, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. That is what the, yeah. the, is the, the presence of Jesus in, in a spiritual form. And you look at how Jesus related to people, uh, you know, the, the biblical scholar Martin Copenhover wrote this great book that just shows that Jesus was like his main grammatical form of engagement was the question. You know, it's yeah. 307 questions, made actually very few statements and answered very few questions, uh, but asked a ton of questions. And yeah. so it makes sense that when we listen to the spirit in our anxiety, in our weakness, uh, what's going to come back is a question. Uh, yeah. and so, you know. And, and again, I do think that when we think about um, the invitation to participate in the life of God, which is, you know, so much of what the Christian life really is, is a sense of you are being invited into the work that God is doing. And that often does come not through directives, but through questions uh, in, in even our human relationships. And I really, I really appreciate that. Another thing that um, you mentioned that was really helpful to me, I, I, I can't remember whether this was in all the gospels or just the gospel of Mark, but looking at the number of people who come to Jesus that are experiencing some form of anxiety, that that yeah. is so often some part of, I mean, but like 80% or something, you know, I don't remember what the percentage is, but a huge, um, it's really, anxiety is really an invitation to turn to God, not in order to be, um, uh, yeah, kind of critiqued for the anxiety, (laughs) but to be received in that place and, and still nevertheless transformed. And maybe we could end by talking a little bit about, um, some of the practices and habits that you have found in your own life that are maybe, I mean, it seems like there's some things we can do in an immediate sense in terms of like, oh, I notice that I'm having anxiety. I'm going to name that. We've talked about some of those, like maybe I'm going to grieve, maybe, you know, but are there others that are more of a sustaining? Mm. I want to try to live in a place where I'm not, I don't know, welcoming anxiety quite as readily. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I'll, I'll speak personally, uh, one that has really sustained me, which is contemplative prayer. Yeah. And I think the reason why contemplative prayer for me uh, has been so rich for me is because one of my great anxieties is the loss of product productivity. Mm-hmm. I really f- am fear that I won't be anxious, uh, won't be useful, right? Like, yeah. I, like some people really lo- look forward to retirement. I I'm, I'm desperately afraid of retirement. Like I can't I'm totally with you. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like I don't play golf. Yeah. I don't, I, there's nothing, no, I'm used to being useful. And, um, so I, one thing happened when I turned 50, which was, I found that myself in the evenings that I was doing a lot more like consumer research 
<laughs> I, I talk about this in my last podcast. So I won't yeah. go into great detail, but I'll just say one of the, and it was because I realized like it was a false um, experience of being useful. It was basically like in the evenings, I didn't have anything to do. My kids were all grown up. They didn't need me. I didn't want to work because I was really guarded against actually doing formal work. But I realized I was still addicted to this need to be useful and productive. So I was like going to this false substitute of like, well, I'll research consumer purchases because it was like <laughs> readily available, right? As a thing that oh, look at all these useful things we could buy that weren't actually that useful um, right. in reality. But but uh, but so here I'm doing that. And I realized, oh my gosh, I am addicted to needing stimulation to, in the evenings to stimulate my sense of productivity and usefulness. And that rather than trying to avoid that loss, is this an opportunity? Is this an invitation by God to actually lean into it, to, mm. to let God investigate? Why are you so afraid of being nonproductive? Yeah. Um, and then that led me to this form of prayer that's an ancient form of prayer, which is contemplative prayer, which is honestly for me really hard to do yeah. because the nature of contemplative prayer is precisely that it is not useful. Like right. you're not interceding, you're not learning some scripture, you're not like doing some exercise, you're just being still. Like you're just being still and trusting that you're in the presence of God, even if you don't subjectively feel it, you are by faith saying, God is present with me now. I'm just going to be still and silent. And for somebody who is addicted to stimulation, to be, to feel useful, that is an incredibly hard place to be in. But I just began to lean into it more and more. You know, first it was five minutes and then 10 minutes a night and 15 and 30 and then got to be an hour. And, you know, mm -hmm. so now and routinely, you know, evenings, it's, it's the thing I most crave and want to do. And it's because it takes me to that place where I can just hold that feeling of loss, right? And for me, it's the loss of productive activity, uh, productive impact in the world. I'm just, I don't have that. I've lost it. And I'm just mm. being still in it. And I'm finding, oh, I can actually tolerate this. I can actually hold this. And actually, I meet God in it in a deeper way than I am when I'm in my furious, you know, sort of uh, pursuit of activity to stave off a, this sense of existential loss. So that's for me, and I, I and it may not be what everyone is, but again, this is the beauty of the anxiety opportunity: is if you're willing to be curious, you're, if you're willing to lean into your anxiety. God, I really believe, has for you something that is designed for you of your pathway for growth towards Him. Mm, and you do a great job in the book of giving multiple of those pathways. I want to um, hone in for just a minute on the contemplative prayer, though. Let's go back to the five-minute version for yeah. people who are um, thinking, uh, I don't know that I could even sustain five minutes. What mm. does that like actually look like? Are you in a room with the lights off, with the door closed? Are you sitting on a yoga mat? Are you lying in your bed? Are like, What's the posture? What's going on in your head when you start thinking about the consumer? Or product you could be researching instead. What do you do? Yeah. Like, will you just kind of walk us through in sure. a much, like in a very <laughs> pragmatic sense? Yeah. So I'm sitting actually, you know, about five feet in this direction from where okay. I'm sitting right now in my, my 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 room, my office, if you will. Uh, I will be there by myself. I'll have a small light on. Uh, the light, the lamp is lighting an icon of the Trinity, Rublev's famous icon of the Trinity. Uh, so it's just, just give me something to look at. It's not like so I have to think great thought, theological thoughts about the Trinity, but it's just something for me to focus on, yeah. to not focus on the twirling thoughts uh, that may otherwise hijack me. 
Uh, and then I will begin by breathing. I will begin by consciously breathing in a very mindful way mm. uh, that is meant to embody the spirit of God present in me because the spirit uh, is very much embodied by breath. The, the pneuma, it is in the Greek, right? Is the spirit, which is breath, where we get pneumatic from, mm -hmm. uh, the ear that flows through us. So just like the breath flows through me, I am um, sort of embodying that the spirit of God is present within me. And so I will begin by just breathing. Um, and then um, uh, in the contemplative practice, they recommend having a word that you mm -hmm. center on. That is your word. It could be just something very simple like Jesus, like peace or what, you know, so I have my own word, which I'll keep private. Um, and uh, I will just, you know, then not verbally, but mentally say that word timed with my breath. So like on mm -hmm. the intake, I will be like repeating that word in me. And so all of that is giving me a way just to anchor myself in the present because I'm breathing. So I'm being very present to my breath, being present to God by rehearsing this word or by looking at the icon. And then I, that's all I do. And then if I yeah. get distracted, which I will, which will happen, I will, yeah. I, I will just observe that. I will just, I won't try to fight it. I won't remonstrate myself or scold myself for getting distracted for thinking about, you know, where should we go for dinner tomorrow? Or, oh, I have my report due, you know, tomorrow. Yeah. I'll just observe it. I'll just like watch it almost like it's on my, on a screen. Like, oh, I'm thinking of this. And, but rather than engaging in it, rather than fighting against it or engaging, it, I'll just observe it. Um, hmm. And then in that process, it, it begins to fade. It goes away uh, because it's just, it's, it's not real. It's just a thought. It's just, a, <laughs> it's just, and so it goes away and then I return to the breath and then if another distracting thought comes by, I notice it, let it pass in a non-judgmental fashion. And then before you know it, five minutes have passed. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it's I can subjectively feel peace come th to me. I can feel the presence of God. Sometimes, many, many times, more often than not, I don't feel anything. I don't feel yeah. anything in particular. And, but then I'm in that just trusting that my relationship with God is more real than even my subjective experience. And mm. it's just a way to discipline me from chasing some subjective experience uh, as the end goal here. Mm. Thank you so much just for taking the time to really spell that out because I have also found as an uber productive, wants to be useful person, um, contemplative prayer, both a tremendous challenge and a tremendous gift. And I suspect that would be true for many listeners to this podcast. And um, it's, you know, obviously quite similar to a practice of meditation. And yet there's also this assumption that the presence of God is um, an aspect of what it means to be mindfully present um, to this moment. And um, it's helpful for me, even I haven't ever prayed with an icon. Um, well, actually, that's not true. I have in my life, but I have not ever regularly done that. And um, that I think could be a helpful practice for me um, in terms of the number of those uh, distracting thoughts that yeah, come along. Sure. That might be helpful to have both a kind of return to the breath and return to the image. Um, that's right. You know, it's kind yeah. of a double returning. Um, that's that right. It's like it's helpful. And I will say... Um, we are coming to the end of our time and perhaps that's a good thing because I don't want to give away everything that is in the pages of your book because I would love to encourage listeners to actually purchase it and read it. But there are, I think you do a really wonderful job of giving some, again, kind of tangible ways to bring habits and practices of 
really addressing anxiety in a way that can lead to, as you said, like spiritual growth. And I I was very grateful for that personally. um, And I'm sure many, many other people will be as well. So thank you so much for your time here today and for writing your book and for the work you do on the Good Faith Podcast too. Thank you so much. It's been uh, really fun to be here with you, Amy. Thank you, as always, for listening to this episode of Love is Stronger Than Fear. We, I did want to just give you a little heads up on what's coming. We are about to turn our attention to Down Syndrome Awareness Month. And I'm really excited about the guests I have lined up. We will be talking with Robin Patterson, who is the producer of a new Netflix series called Down for Love. Get to learn more about that in weeks ahead. And I'm also going to be talking with Stephanie Meredith, who is the author of a new study about prenatal testing and the ways that doctors deliver a diagnosis of Down syndrome. And in both of these cases, um, we're not just talking about Down for Love and this study. We're really talking about what it means uh, to have an imagination for a good life, a good life lived in all sorts of different ways, um, including with Down syndrome. What else do I have to tell you? All right. If you go over to amyjuliabecker.com slash newsletter, you can sign up for my free monthly email. It is full of reflections from me as well as upcoming speaking events, books I'm reading, podcasts I'm listening to, other news. I would love for you to be a part of that community so you don't miss anything that is coming out uh, from me. I would also love to ask you to do a really helpful thing. Could you leave a review? on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to this podcast. It should only take a couple of minutes and your review will help this content to reach more people. While you're there, be sure you're subscribed so you don't miss any new episodes. They will air every other Tuesday. I always love to hear from you. My email is amyjuliabeckerwriter at gmail.com. Finally, I want to give some thanks to Jake Hansen for editing this podcast, to Amber Beery for doing everything else to make sure that it happens. And I want to thank you for being here. And I want to offer you a word of farewell with hope that you will carry the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear. <laughs>